Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings and your presence with us here again today. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you call us to a life of faithfulness. And as we will notice as we read the scripture in just a few minutes, that calls for faith and works. And I pray for Dave as he preaches from this portion of your word. Would you give him uh, your wisdom and grace? And as we listen and as we hear, I pray that we can uh, do that faithfully so that we will be better fitted for life the rest of today and, and in this coming week, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. You've been faithful in all generations. And we know that you will continue to be faithful in the future and eternally. Thank you for that home uh, up in heaven for us when we are finished here. We're so grateful for the plan of salvation, that you are our Lord and Savior, uh, and for all that you have for us. Thank you again, um, Lord, that for the privilege of being together like this. And we just ask that our lives can show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James 2, beginning at verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only." Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You may be seated. The book of James has often been noted for its uh, street-level approach to the teachings that are highlighted in the book here. You're not going to uh, get lost real quickly reading the book of James because of its simple and practical, down-to-earth approach. It is um, kind of in-your-face in its uh, teachings and its, uh, its doctrine, not particularly hard to understand. The fact is, we may actually not like the book of James because of that. 
And the book of James has actually not been very appreciated throughout Christian history. Um, the passage that we're looking at today has been a point of discussion for at least 500 years. Um, Martin Luther, was, who was kind of the father of the Reformation, actually called the book of James the book of straw because he taught and believed that the book of James was kind of um, contrary to the rest of Scripture, and he thought it would actually kind of burn up. James just sort of calls it like he sees it. And as he goes along in the book, he, um, he, he, uh, he does that. He just kind of brings up issues um, in sequence, one after the next. I have found myself feeling sort of intimidated by teaching and preaching this, this book, by studying it. For instance, as I preach, I believe that you know me well enough to see that um, I have these same tendencies in my life. The things that James is teaching about are present in, in my life. And so as I teach and preach, I want you to know I am not coming from a victory pageant of some kind. But it's been good for me to study this book because it has brought things to my attention that have been good for me. As a pastor, it is very easy to see that James cares about the people that he's writing to. The folks that he is addressing here, probably largely but not limited to the church at Jerusalem, where he was a pastor. And James has a tendency to see and to interpret what's happening around him. He sees issues. He sees uh, current events. He sees things that the people in his congregation are, are uh, struggling with in their life. He sees how they're living. He hears the stories. He knows that the person has this certain business dealing going on. And he knows about the person who has this certain other issue going on in his or her life. And he understands that. He sees, he sees all of this going on. And so as he begins to write, to speak to these situations... He's thinking about current issues in the church that he's addressing, and as we've talked about throughout um, our series here, they are just as current and contemporary to our time as, as they are or were to that time. <clears throat> James has a right to do this. He's the pastor of the church, and Many people believe that the book of James was the earliest New Testament book that was written. And besides that, Jerusalem was sort of the hub of Christian activity, at least in the early part of Christian church. The, kind of the center of what was going on at that time. And Jerusalem was the church where, the place where the church had its beginnings. And the evangelical effort that was branching out into all the world, sort of had its beginnings, and it, it stemmed from Jerusalem. The early church fathers were there, or from there, had connections to that, to that city and that church. And on top of that, James was the bishop. He was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And besides that, he was a half-brother to Jesus, which in any respect kind of gave him a certain level of credibility. Um, whether it was um, 
intentional or not. This morning in our passage here in James 2, 14 to 26, at least in my opinion, James sort of takes the theme of the book to an even higher level. He turns it up a notch. The theme, of course, as we've talked about, or one of the primary themes of the book of James is that we would be doers of the word, not only hearers, not merely making some sort of profession, not merely claiming some kind of experience, but we would actually live what is taught or actually live what we believe be the case in our lives or what the Bible teaches would be practiced and lived in our lives. And that has to do with how we um, conduct ourselves, our actions. It comes out through our words. It comes out by how we treat people. It affects how we do business. And just in general, how we conduct our lives. How we arrange our lifestyles. The challenge of this section is actually quite simple. The challenge is that if our works, the things that we do, do not support what we claim to be our faith, then maybe, just maybe, our faith is not real. The title that I've given this passage is Faith That Works. Faith That Works. Now there's a couple of things that I want to clarify right from the start here. Things that James is not saying. What James is not saying here is that faith and works are in competition with each other. That is sort of the pitfall that many of us come under, and the fact that I think Martin Luther came under. Faith and works are not in competition with each other. Faith and works are used together ten times. They come uh, in that, used together in pair, as a pair, ten times in this passage. It is not faith or works. It is faith and works. Let's just keep that in our, in our uh, focus as we go through this passage and as we interpret other places in Scripture. True faith in Jesus Christ. True faith in Jesus Christ is one of the most life-transforming things that can happen in the world. It is not faith or works. It is faith and works. Secondly, what James is not saying is that good works are necessary in order to be saved or to become saved. Nowhere in this passage is James teaching that we should work more, that we should have more leaves on the tree, if you want to borrow from the, the illustration of, of our Sunday school lesson. There is no place in this passage where you will find where James is teaching that we should, that we should uh, um, do more good deeds in order to so that our faith is alive. In fact, it's the other way. He is talking about our faith being alive or dead and our deeds or our works uh, evidence or showing that. 
That's what we believe. That's what we teach and have for many years, especially as the Anabaptist uh, model that we embrace. And it's one of the things, quite frankly, that sets Christianity apart from almost all other belief and faith models of the world. All the other, many, most, if not all of the other religious models of the world teach that you have to do more in order to have better standing with God. The other belief systems of the world are different in that we believe that our salvation is by grace through faith and that what we do from there uh, evidences or gives credibility to what we actually um, teach and live. I want to just draw a couple of other parallels here from other places in the New Testament. Titus chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. The Bible makes it just as clear as could be. We are not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. You can see the little bit of highlighting there. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, very familiar verses to us. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The point here in the book of James and other places in Scripture in the New Testament is that we had nothing to do with our salvation. Nothing. It's not Jesus plus confirmation. It's not Jesus plus you should be baptized. It's not Jesus plus you should be a member of the church. Even though those things are good in and of itself. We believe and teach that Jesus did absolutely everything necessary, everything that's needed for our salvation. There is not something more that will be forthcoming. There will not be some additional revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, when God finished the New Testament, revelation ends with a period. There are not additional revelations. There is not another Jesus that's coming. The work of Christ is finished. It is done. And one of the things that I believe is meant by Jesus' final words on the cross, where he said, it is finished, is that very thing. The work's done. The opportunity, the plan of redemption is completed. There will not be something additional that is yet coming. So now that I've made that this profession, now that I've bought into this, now that I've committed my life to Christ, now that I've accepted and believed God's work and God's plan for me, it changes my heart. I should become a doer. And I could probably even more correctly say that I will become a doer. It is not something that we have to drum up from within. We have the motivation from the the Holy Spirit that lives in us, the work of Christ in our life motivates us, and it impacts how we see people around us who Jesus also loves and also died for. We see people as more valuable than things, things that all end up in the junkyard anyway, sooner or later. My belief in the finished work of Christ should and does change me. It should have an effect on me. It does have an effect on me. And if it doesn't, 
if the work of Christ does not have an effect on me, then I think James is teaching. I think James is teaching that if the work of Christ does not have an effect on how we live, the question can legitimately be asked, is it real? If our life is not changed, if our life is not dominated and influenced and impacted, is it faith? When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he talked to him about becoming brand new. And he said, you know, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Born again. You need to have a spiritual birth. And as a result of that, change comes into our lives. Paul writes about it later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If any man be in Christ, he becomes new. Change. And so, if I have this personal relationship with Jesus where the old is passed away and new things are dominating my life instead of what used to dominate my life, Jesus begins the process of changing. The Holy Spirit works in our lives. The power of God is working in our lives. It changes my desires. It changes my, the things I see, the things I notice. The things that dominate my life are not how it used to be. Does that mean I will never sin again? Not necessarily. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, Paul asks the question where he says, Why do I do the very things that I hate? And all of us probably have had that experience, haven't we? We feel bad about that, right? We do the very things that we hate. You know, do you know why we feel bad about that? It's because Jesus made a promise to his disciples back in John chapter 16, when he told the disciples that he is going to be leaving. In fact, there would not be a physical Jesus in their presence anymore. But he would send them a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the comforter, the Holy Spirit, would guide them into all truth. One of the aspects of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts the world of sin. And what a blessing that is. It has the idea of nurturing, has the idea of maturing, has the idea of putting in promptings and um, calling us to a higher level of faith. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you're sitting here this morning and you can honestly say that you have never felt convicted in your life, never felt convicted, my question is, are you a believer? That's the job of the Holy Spirit in your life, to convict the world of sin, to call you to a higher level of faith. The point is that if we have a profession of faith in Christ, the change in our life is obvious. The change in our life should be noticeable. If it's not, according to James, it's not faith. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, talk about 
the false prophets and call into uh, attention the fruits. And Jesus goes on to expound that good things come from good trees. Good fruit comes from good trees. And bad fruit comes from bad trees. It's not the other way around. A good tree does not produce evil fruit. An evil fruit, an evil tree does not produce good fruit. In John chapter 15, verses 4 to 8, kind of a parallel to our Sunday school lesson today about the fruitless tree. No fruit. The key, I think, is in verse 8. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and they cast into the fire and they are burned. No fruit. No fruit. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. And so shall ye be my disciples. That's what we're talking about in our passage, in our lesson, the sermon today. Jesus, James is teaching the exact same thing here in our text today. The proof of my profession, the evidence of my testimony, is dependent on what my life produces. What comes out of my life. The result of being born again, the result of being changed, is that my actions do not produce things that are contrary to what my faith dictates or what I claim. This passage talks about three different kinds of faith. First of all, we see dead faith in verses 14 to 17. Dead faith. Verses 14 to 17. The focus of James, like I've said before, is to be doers, not hearers only. And so he really gets into the heart of things here, the issue here, and he says that there were people that somehow had gotten to the place where they believed that all that was needed was a testimony. All that was needed were a, 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 a series of words or um, some sort of accumulation of, of facts or a set of facts that was needed and that somehow was uh, put them in right standing with God. Somehow, the people of James's time were, had the teaching where if you believed the right things about God, then you, you, that was what was needed. That was it. You don't need to do anything. Just think the right things. Just have the right profession. Just claim the right set of facts. And the passage here is just as clear as could be, that if you have no change in your life, then you probably don't have Jesus in your life. Five times, he gives us, um, five times in this series of 12 verses, he gives us the teaching that non-active faith is not a saving faith. Faith without works. Look at verse 14. What good is it? What good is it if a man have faith? If a man say he have faith and have not works? What good is it? That's a rhetorical question. The, answer, the obvious answer is there is no good in that. Next in verse 14, can faith save him? A second rhetorical question that the answer obviously is no. 
If there is no works, if there are no actions that back up a person's testimony, it is not saving faith. A rhetorical question in verse 17. Faith apart from works is dead. Faith alone, faith by itself is dead. And verse 20. Faith apart from works is useless. The Greek word here has just a little bit of a different text, a little bit of a different twist, and it has the idea of no life or being useless in that sense. It has no value. And then the fifth time is in verse 26, where he again sums up and he circles back to that same aspect, that faith as the body without the spirit is dead. In that same way, faith without works is dead. If the spirit leaves your body for whatever reason, you are dead. And in that same way, if there are no works that back up our profession, our faith is dead. That's pretty clear. Notice in verse 14, if a man say, if a man say, it's mentioned a few other times in this passage, if a man say, has the idea of a person making claims or making a profession. Reminds me of Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. The Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men or by a set of facts that they have adopted. <clears throat> what James is doing here is challenging the validity of a faith that does nothing. First John actually does the exact same thing. First John chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. He that saith, there is that same word, he that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God. That's in direct contrast to verse 4. And in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. The things that come out of our lives give evidence of our standing with Christ. He that saith, there's the same concept. He that says he abides in him ought himself to walk like that, even as he, as Jesus, walked. You can say that I go to church. You can say I am a church member. But it does not make you right with God. Look at verse uh, Matthew 7. Circling back to that, we had looked at the passage just a little bit earlier, up to verse 20. In verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Not everyone that saith. Profession. A claim to be a Christian does not one a Christian make. It is very interesting 
that the group of people used It's just interesting to look at how this group of people here in Matthew 7 addressed the Lord. You notice even they say, Lord, Lord. And in, in ancient Greek or even Hebraic writings, the repetition of that was sort of a, a note of affection. For instance, God used it numerous times when he talked to people. He said, Abraham, Abraham. Or Moses, Moses. It's a term of affection. And these people here that are addressed here in Matthew 7 have done spiritual activity. They have done things that are good in and of itself. They say, didn't we do spiritual things? Didn't we serve? But Jesus does not address their actions here. He does not say that they didn't serve. He does not necessarily disqualify their acts. He just says that I never knew you. I never knew you. Too many people today are just culturally Christian. It's kind of like saying, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. I'm a Christian. And it sort of is designed to put you in a certain bracket. If a man says, if a man says, I think often words serve me. Actions serve others. Words serve me, actions serve others. In 1 John, verses 5, 11 to 12, this is the record, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, Jesus. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. The teaching is about the, rev- the relationship that God gives us, and that relationship has the f- changing effect in my life. James 2, verses 15 and 16. James gives a very practical illustration. A practical example of faith without works. Faith without works. Look at what he says. If a brother or sister be naked, destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, Notwithstanding, you don't give him what is obviously necessary. What does it profit? It's a rhetorical question. It, it doesn't profit anything. Maybe a more modern example would be if you're on a road trip and you see somebody that's stopped along the road. There's steam coming out from under the hood. The hood is up. Maybe they have a flat tire. The battery's dead. And you say, oh, your battery's dead. Oh, you have a flat tire. Oh, your car's hot. Maybe the temperature outside is 100 degrees and you say, oh, it, you know, maybe you should have some warm or some cold water. But you get in your car and you drive off. You have done nothing to help. Words serve me. Actions serve others. The second kind of faith that's talked about here in James is demonic faith. 
in verses 18 and 19. Now, James brings up a fictitious question in verse 18. It's like a, um, an illustration, probably not something that actually happened. A man said, Thou hast faith, and I have works. You go ahead and show me your faith without your works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. The only possible evidence for true faith is by what comes out of our lives, is the point that James is making. If our life is doing the same things that we always did, it is not true faith. If we claim that Jesus is Lord, we say that Jesus is Lord, that's no better than demons. It is so interesting to notice, especially in the Gospels, the theology of demons. Even Satan himself and his temptation to Christ approached him and he says, if or since you are the Son of God, the theology of demons is actually quite correct. Look at this. In Mark 1 verse 34, Jesus healed many that were sick of divers or different diseases, and he cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. They recognized him. The demons get it. Luke chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. We know who you are, the demons said. You are the Holy One of God. The demons said that. That's more than a lot of people say today. A couple of verses later, in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, the devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of, the, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. That means that they understood that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. The demons knew that. That's more than many people today know. You know, if we would be in a conversation with somebody today, I would be inclined, if somebody would, would say that I know Christ, and somebody would say he's the Holy One of God, and somebody would, that same person would say he's the Messiah, he's the Savior of the world, I would say, brother, you got it. But that's what the demons do, actually. That's not more, that's not greater faith than the demons have. The demons recognize him, but even though they claim his lordship, even though they understand and recognize him as the savior of the world, they do not embrace that. They do not live that. They don't honor him. They don't serve him. They don't love him. It is not enough just for you to say that you have an understanding about Christ. It is not enough for you to say that you have an understanding about God's plan. <clears throat> Several weeks ago in our Sunday school class, we were studying the passage about the rich young man who 
was interested in knowing what he needed to do to achieve or attain spiritual life. Remember that? Eternal life was the word he used. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, that actually means mature or complete. If you would be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. I'm familiar with that part. In fact, I could have probably said that pretty, pretty readily, rather easily. I could have said that was Jesus' answer. Sell what thou hast, give to the poor. But one of the brothers in our class actually made a tremendously good point where he said he brought attention to the fact that after that particular statement, there's a colon. And then there's the connecting word, and. Go and sell that thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow. It's not only merely knowing about a set of facts. It's not claiming that set of facts. It requires a relationship. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This passage brings out that it's believing and seeking. Come and follow. Believing is not necessarily more than the demon's theology. The third kind of faith that's highlighted here in our passage is a demonstrated faith. Look at what he says in verse 20. But wilt thou, O vain man, know that faith without works is dead? And he goes on to give two illustrations from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was Hebrew, and he was male. Rahab was Gentile and female. That sort of tells me that this teaching is for everybody, anyone. And these two speak of everybody in the Old Testament. You can believe the right things, but that alone has no power to save you. That's what the Scriptures have always taught us. Hebrews 11, for example, is a list of Old Testament characters. We call it the Hall of Faith. All of those illustrations in Hebrews 11, people of faith... But the scripture is just as clear that the reason, remember them, the reason that their faith is highlighted in Hebrews chapter 11 is because of what they did. Fifteen times in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, by faith, they did this. By faith, they carried out what God had intended. Their faith was demonstrated. The reason that Hebrews 11 is so well known and familiar to us is because there are actions that followed 
the belief of the characters, the profession of what they claimed was carried out and how they lived. <clears throat> Abraham was a patriarch who was married to Sarah, and they were childless. But God had promised that their descendants would be like the sand, which is by the seashore, innumerable, no possible way of counting, of keeping track. Additionally, God had said that the land that they're wandering on, the land that they're traveling on in their nomadic lifestyle would be, one day be theirs. Eventually, eventually, at least 25 years after the promise, a son was born to Abraham and Sarah named Isaac. And he clearly was the fulfillment. There was all kinds of evidence that he was the fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy. He was the promised son. However, the call came just as clearly to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham, that term of affection. And he said, I want you to take Isaac and offer him for a burnt offering. And Abraham understood that the only possible scenario would be for Isaac's life to be spared somehow. Hebrews 11 tells us that he went to Mount Moriah by faith, believing, understanding, accepting that God was able to raise him from the dead. The only possible fulfillment of the promise was that somehow God would spare Isaac's life. And his belief in that inspired him to travel three days to Mount Moriah, tie up his son, arrange the wood, lay up the stones, and go about as close to carrying out the sacrifice as could possibly be done. His faith produced actions. His faith produced works. And the Bible tells us that his faith was made perfect. See that in verse 22? By works, by works, his faith was made perfect. And I told you a bit ago, that word perfect means mature, complete, to be brought to fruition. Works completed that cycle. And it produced an experience of justification. It is part, of the, it is part and parcel of the story of Abraham. Who of us enjoys gardening? Probably quite a few of us. Enjoy putting a seed into the ground and nurturing that seed and watching it come to life and ultimately producing fruit. That's the agricultural production cycle. Producing fruit. The Greek word that's used here for perfect, one aspect of that word applies directly to this illustration. There's an aspect of the Greek word that actually can easily apply to this cycle, this horticultural or agricultural life cycle that we talk about, where we take a seed and place it into the ground, 
And that seed grows up to the point where it produces fruit. Did you catch that? A seed is placed into the ground. It springs up and bears fruit. That's the cycle. That's the circle of agricultural production. And in the Christian life, a very similar thing takes place. A very similar thing happens. A seed is placed into our lives. That seed is the Word of God. It is the gospel. It is the good news of salvation. It is the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. We have nothing to do with that. That seed is placed into our lives by God himself. We have no control of that. But that seed grows up and becomes a plant that produces fruit. The production of fruit. The fruit does not save you. It is not the good works that save you, but the good works, the fruit is evidence of the quality of that plant. The good works prove that God's grace has been extended to you. In verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The question that comes to our minds from time to time is, how were the people in the Old Testament saved? Well, the answer is, they were saved in the exact same way you and I are, through belief in Christ. Through belief in that cycle of salvation, in that circle, that greater picture of of life in Jesus Christ. Going back to verse 24 here. Listen to what is said. I saved this part for last because I think it's pretty important. Verse 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. The key, as I see it, here is the word justified. At least that's how I look at it. I think, as I see it, the word justified is kind of like an illustration that I've already tapped into. Right in front of us, we have a line. Justification, salvation, penalty that was that we deserved was taken away from us. God's grace was extended to us, and that brings rescue. It produces, it brings salvation. So right in front of us. But before that happened, God planted the seed. It was not something that we did. On this side of salvation, on the other side of salvation, this plant grows up and produces fruit, and it completes the cycle of it all. And that's so much how it is in our Christian lives. James' point here is that that we cannot say that we have faith if it is not able to be validated. Earlier, I began this sermon by showing you 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Do you know what verse 10 says? Are you familiar with verse 10? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Praise the Lord. But verse 10 continues, and it says, We are his workmanship, created unto good works. Or God saved us in order that we, that our lives, produce good fruit, good works. God has before ordained that it should be this way. Here's the deal. God saved you. He extended his grace toward you. He put his Holy Spirit inside of you. And that changed you. That changed how you thought. It changed your attitude. It changed how you look at life. It changes how you look at people around you. It makes all the difference in the world, whether you're in ministry, whether you're at school, whether you're at home, wherever you are, that phenomenon of Christ coming to live in your life has brought change. But it is just as clear that that change needs, affect, needs to affect all of our lives, not just one aspect. There is not one set of principles that govern how we live at work, and there's not another set of principles that, a whole other set of principles that dictate how we live the rest of our lives. <clears throat> and that proof comes as a result of the work of God. The proof that the seed of God has actually been planted is demonstrated by how dominated and controlled we are by that fact. The question or questions that I leave with you this morning this is just for all of us individually. You know, I, I can't answer these questions for you, and you can't answer them for me. The question is, are you any different? Is your life any different than it was before you were saved? Have you changed? Can you look at your life and you say that the things that you hold dear now are different than the things that you held dear before you were Christian. Is there any difference? Am I willing to talk to others about what Christ is doing in my life? Am I willing to approach other people about the Lord? Do I enjoy the fellowship of other believers? Do I allow other people to speak into my life? Am I eager? Am I ready and waiting for Christ's soon return? You know, if you can't say that, if you can't say that, I'm not a food inspector or anything, but if you can't say that, I think the Bible indicates that there's a need for a revival. I think the Bible indicates that something needs to change. Your focus needs to change. You need to let some of the things fall off that are dragging you down. You need to make some decisions about where your life is headed. You need to make some decisions about what the Word of God says and your approach to that. Perhaps you're here this morning and there have not been any changes for a long time. All of your illustrations are decades old. What about that? How current, how recent are your illustrations? 
Are you just doing life and going about life the same way that you always have in the energy of your own strength? My prayer is that you would be renewed by the realization that the seed of God has been planted in your life. And if that has happened, that the perfection and the maturity produces fruit. And James indicates that we have a part in the production of that fruit. How we live our lives, the decisions that we make, the conduct that we keep, And the Bible is just as clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that that workmanship that God has started in our lives is something good. It's the start of something good. It's something that God says, the Bible indicates God designed for us. He ordained for us. It's his plan. And my prayer that God would give all of us the faith that works. My prayer is that we would have faith that works. If you're able, I invite you to uh, kneel for prayer. Lord, our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your abundant grace. We pray, Lord, that as we go through our lives, that we would conduct our lives in such a way that would give evidence of your work in our lives. Show us, Father, how we can take that next level, that next step of faith. I pray that our profession would be much more than words, much more than claiming a, a certain set of facts. I pray, Lord, that you would help our lives to be dominated and controlled by the fact that you have planted that seed in our lives. And I pray that that seed would grow up and produce fruit abundantly. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word and how it speaks to us. And thank you, Lord, for giving us your reminders and your demonstrating and showing your love for us. We pray through Christ. Amen.